Welcome to the Operation Crest podcast. I'm Riley. And I'm Ava. And we are the co-hosts of today's episode. Operation Crest is an effort from the 957 Project to empower high school students like us to preserve memories of America's veterans and to share their stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Each of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to be preserved for future generations. You can hear other episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to stick around at the end of this episode to hear us reflect on what we learned during the following conversation. Learn more at www.the957project.org slash Operation Crest. And now let's begin the show. Today we are interviewing Captain Jason Smith. Jason is a 25-year military veteran serving as a pilot and leader in both the U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. Army. He has served on the National Security Council as Senior Policy Advisor on the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, and as a Strategic Advisor and Communications Director for the Commandant of the Coast Guard. He has led soldiers and sailors during three combat deployments, nine afloat deployments, and in emergency response to several hurricanes, including Hurricane Katrina, rescuing more than 200 lives. He has served at the operational and strategic level, working with state, federal, tribal, and foreign agencies. Jason has a master's in public administration from Harvard, a master's in international relations from St. Mary's University, and a bachelor's in biology from Sam Houston State University. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I mean, just from reading a little bit about yourself, uh, your interest in biology is just very fascinating. What made you pursue that? <laughs> All right, that's a uh, that's a great story, right? So, you, as you can see, um, bachelor's in biology. Although my uh, um, I never used it past getting out of uh, undergraduate, which was uh, I guess good enough for uh, for a major. Um, but the, uh, the it, tell you the truth, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. Uh, graduating high school, um, went to college, and was you know thought it, thought at first I was going to be in a criminal justice major, and that was going to be what I was going to do. And then all of a sudden, I was took some speech classes and thought, well, you know, communication is important. I'll be I'll be uh, um, good at speaking, so I'll be like a communication speech major. And, I bounced around trying to figure out what I wanted to do and, and ended up truthfully with, with uh, biology because I was always into health and fitness. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm a biology major, I'll know more about the human body and exercising and, and that'd be a good way to, to stay fit. So I was a biology major. Well, the funny thing about that is they have a major about health and fitness it's not biology. It's called kinesiology. Uh, so I took a lot more harder classes probably than I needed to, uh, not knowing any better. And along the way, <coughs> along the way, I um, kind of more tripped and fell into uh, the Army ROTC program because I went to college to Sam Houston a lot to play football. And then I ended up switching over and playing lacrosse. And some of my buddies that played lacrosse were also in the ROTC program. And the Army ROTC program at Sam Houston State University is a great program. And they have a like a varsity sport of their own uh, called Ranger Challenge. And the guys that I played lacrosse with asked me to come uh, participate in their Ranger Challenge with them. So I was like, yeah, sounds great. I did Ranger Challenge. 
the uh, we did well. I went to nationals, I think, that year. And coming back off of that, the the active duty 05 battalion commander for the ROTC unit at Sam Houston, the Army has a great program where they can give what they call an incentive scholarship. So you don't have to apply. You don't have to do anything that that lieutenant colonel can just walk up to you and say, here, Anna, or here, Riley, I'd like you to be part of ROTC. I like what I'm seeing. You you want this scholarship. And I, as I said, I've been kind of been in college for about three years and changing majors quite a bit. Um, and uh, so as I get, sounds great to me. Signed on the dotted line. I uh, got into ROTC. And actually a couple of years, you know, about a year later, I decided I wanted to change majors again away from biology and do something else. But because I had signed on the dotted line for ROTC, I now had to have permission to change majors, which in the past I hadn't, which I probably needed to kept me bouncing around so much. But so I went in there and had this great spill, this whole thing lined up to my, uh, this Lieutenant Colonel about why I should change and how my plan was to graduate and all that. And he was very patient and he listened to the whole spill I had. And then uh, at the end of it, he said, well, that sounds great, Jason, but let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to stay a biology major and you're going to uh, graduate and become a second lieutenant in the army and go do great things for your country. And I said, yes, sir. And walked out and stayed a biology major. So after the army, um, what made you choose to join the Coast Guard? Yeah. So um, you think I, I get that question a lot. You know, somebody, you know, people like, oh, you left the army for the Coast Guard. Why did you why did you switch services? Uh so you, by now you think I would have like this great super pat answer, um, which unfortunately I don't. Uh, a lot of it is just grass is greener a little bit, right? So uh, I had nothing against the Army. I, I enjoyed my Army time. I especially enjoyed uh, the folks I got to serve with and uh, got to know, and they've all become family to me uh, still to this day, which has been, gosh, 20 years since I left the Army, and we're still very, very close and and talk and get together a lot. Uh, but I had thought, to tell you the truth, at the time, I thought, hey, you know, I, I I had deployed, I guess, at that time to Bosnia, supported Kosovo, did Afghanistan early on, right shortly after 9-11, did Iraq uh, 2003, so or 2002, 2003, I guess. Um, and so I had felt like, well, I'd done all that and wasn't looking at, okay, what, what would I do in the future in the army? And, and it didn't seem as appealing to me as what I had just done, right? The closeness with, as a, I was a company commander when I left the army and, you know, as a 03 captain, uh, rank, uh, you have, you interact with, with the pilots and troops and, and crewmen that are fixing your helicopters and everything every day so close that uh, as you increase rank, I didn't think I would have that, that closeness with them. Now, again, like I said, grass is greener and, and you look back and I'm sure I would have enjoyed my time if I'd have stayed in the army. But the Coast Guard on the other hand, really seemed appealing to me because one, I could get over there and I could continue to fly. Uh, the other was that I loved the Coast Guard mission. Not only did they have the military armed forces type mission that I was doing in the army, but they also had humanitarian mission, search and rescue, 
uh, Homeland Security. And if you take yourself back to that time frame, which was around 2002 when I was making this decision and I left the army uh, out of Iraq in the summer of uh, 2003, um, we thought that there was still quite a threat to the homeland. You know, 9-11 had just happened, um, still fresh in all of our memories, that's for sure. Uh, and we didn't know that we were going to have, like we do now, the next 20 years without some kind of major attack in, on the United States. So the idea of, of being in the Coast Guard and protecting the homeland directly and doing those kind of security patrols and, and maybe stopping folks from, that are able to hit the, hit the homeland up close and personal was a very, very appealing to me. So I always kind of thought of it like the Army. I was doing the away game, and then the Coast Guard, I was kind of doing the home game. And I liked the idea of, of playing that home build advantage and protecting the, protecting the house, right, protecting the, the home. So that was kind of my major region to, to switch. And it's been good. I, in no place, like I said, I'm sure I would have uh, <laughs> loved the Army if I had stuck around in it. But uh, I, as the stuff that you said on, on my bio, the things that I've been able to do in the Coast Guard uh, – um, has been amazing. I feel super lucky and blessed that I was allowed to do it. Right. Like sometimes I have to pinch myself. Cause like, you know, the imposter syndrome is re is real. Um, like they're going to figure out one day that, uh, that they probably shouldn't be letting me do all this cool stuff uh, because I don't, uh, I don't deserve it. Um, do you have any memorable stories as a pilot? That's a, that's a, crazy question to ever ask the pilot right because we could just several start flying with our hands and there i was i was inverted i knew i was inverted because my air medals were beating me in the face type stories you know so so you never ask a pilot maybe those questions but yes i have some some uh some great stories um i will say that uh probably one of my um well one of my favorite stories was when we went and to Afghanistan. So it was, it was a few months after 9-11 and we were stationed at Fort Campbell with the 101st uh, Airborne Division at the time, Air Assault. Uh, and we had got alerted that they, get, they want us to get to Afghanistan immediately. So, you know, the 101st rapid response, supposed to be able to anywhere in the world within like 36 hours. Uh, they diverted, um, C-17s, Air Force C-17s to Fort Campbell for us to load our helicopters into. So we had all these Apaches and we were folding, taking the blades off and, and stuffing the helicopters in the, in the airplanes. And of course that was just a crazy time because, you know, you're calling all your troops in. I had some troops on, uh, some pilots on leave. And I was like, Hey, you got to get back here now. And, and so we do this overnight. And it's kind of funny. It's the side story. Those C-17s were bound other places to Hawaii or wherever they're going and they get diverted to, to Fort Campbell in the winter. And, uh, you saw people coming off those. If you just happen to be riding one of those C-17s as a passenger, like space available to go to maybe Hawaii or something, uh, not pay for plane tickets. Um, they come off with their Hawaiian shirts and their shorts on like, this does not look like Hawaii. What am I doing in Fort Campbell? And it's, they don't have it. I mean, that's the risk you take when you jump on one of those space a right They're stuck now at Fort Campbell having to figure out, how they're going to complete their trip because we have the C-17s. So we load all of our um, stuff on these C-17s. They throw us on the C-17s and they take us to Afghanistan. And it was totally surreal. You know, we land in, in Afghanistan. We unload our helicopters. Our crew chiefs are, went with us. 
put the helicopters back together, and they basically say, hey, the fight's that away, pointing north, and go. And we didn't, uh, you know, normally prior to flying, uh, you have mission briefs, and you have maps, and you have an intel brief of here's bad guys, and here's what's going on and stuff. But they needed us up there so fast, it was just like jump in your helicopters, we'll wave because you normally would test fly them after you had everything off. We're going to wave the test flight and just fly north to this GPS location and get further briefed. Um, <clears throat> and I remember flying across, you know, you got to think, you know, one minute you're in lush Tennessee, Kentucky, green trees, even though it's winter. Um, next you're flying over sand dunes. It literally looks like you went back, uh, you know, I had never experienced anything like that growing up in a, in a small town in Texas. So it's like you went back a thousand years into biblical stories, right, with camels uh, and caravans. And we were just flying north and you would see um, old weapon systems uh, every once in a while. And you're like, "Ooh, should we be shooting that? I don't know. Was that a good guy or a bad guy? Is it just old? Is it just sitting there? You, you know, so we had no idea. So that was... Um, Obviously, we made it, and uh, we made it into uh, where we were supposed to be, and then we started running missions out of there, and that was part of Operation, ended up being part of Operation Anaconda, which was a big battle in uh, Afghanistan, um, and we had, uh, you know, just immediately just like right into the fight, and so it was kind of a crazy, surreal time to try to figure out, your brain doesn't have time to, to uh, transfer, you know, what is going on uh, at all. That is, uh, that was one of my... It's always a fun story for me to tell just because it's, it's just it's hard to imagine that to go from one day we're all sitting here doing this interview the next day you're halfway around the world a place you never you know heard of maybe growing up and you're flying around and not sure okay this is not how it's supposed to that's not how we train is this how it works i'll stop there i can go on to all all kinds of aviation stories that uh, maybe we'll get into more later but i, I won't uh, keep talking about them Uh, do you remember any of your instructors and like anything important or memorable about them? Uh, sure. Um, so like aviation type instructors or yeah. military instructors or in general. Um, so I'll start with, uh, um, we had, when I was in ROTC, so this is obviously pre flying. Um, <clears throat> we had a, uh, a, Master Sergeant. So each of the ROTCs normally have your officers, right, that are either led by a 06, which would be a colonel in the Army, for the Coast Guard like me, captain, which is the equivalent that the seagoing services use a little bit of different rank structure. So a captain in the seagoing services like the Navy and the, and the Coast Guard is like a colonel in the Army, Air Force, and, and Marine Corps. And that just goes to maritime history if you only have one captain on the, on the ship. Um, but anyway, so you usually have like a senior an officer that's charged of ROTC, but then you also have like a senior enlisted uh, that is also kind of helping run the ROTC and teaching and, and raising the young uh, cadets to be officers and kind of teaching how to interact with the enlisted ranks and, and how those two come together. Because a lot of times you have a lot of experience on the enlisted side and a brand new officer that doesn't. How do you gain from that person's experience but still be in charge? So there's a balance. But we had one instructor there, a guy named uh, um, uh, Melanie 
Melvin Neely, Uncle Mel, we called him because he was so great to all of us cadets. And he was, he's somebody that I think I always look back to and remember the advice and stories he told us as cadets uh, and how to be successful and just, just how to, not just that, just how to act, his professionalism, but, but still keeping it fun, right? He could be a professional, but still make it enjoyable to be around. And I, and all my colleagues, other cadets at the ROTC program, all have done great things, much better things than I've done. And I would all say that Uncle Uncle Mel uh, Sarnita was a, a big influence on that. As a, uh, it's interesting, as a as flight instructor, I can tell you that um, we had, uh, so I had a, my first flight instructor in primary, I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama, primary that's where army does their flight school and the army puts you know mainly helicopters so almost all of the helicopter folks and i had this i'll call him an old crusty old crusty vietnam vet uh flight instructor and I, who knows he probably trained a million new pilots i'm just one of the the million right and i remember trying to learn how to hover and kind of look, hovering a helicopter is kind of like, you know, rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time. But also while you're doing that, doing like a tap dance with your feet, because you got to use all, all feet, your hands, your whole nine yards, like while you're doing this. And learning to hover a helicopter is, um, it's, it can be pretty difficult. Uh, you know, and for me, it, I was probably, I wouldn't say, I wish I, I'd like to say I was just like a natural and could fly right off the bat, but I was probably, average or maybe less than average trying to figure out how to hover this thing and one day he he put me in a football field size training area you know out in the field surrounded by trees and he put me right in the middle of it and I said all right hu hover it here and there's something about those trees that are like a magnet so you're holding so I'm holding like uh so you can see like I'm holding you know my cyclic and my collective which is the control for the helicopter and you want to stay away from the trees, but there's somehow they're a magnet and you just would get closer and closer to trees and you're like, oh, I got to get away from those. And it wasn't smooth at all, you know, all over the place. And finally, this crusty old Vietnam air instructor pilot I have, just like, I'm done. I'm done. And he, we're flying or I'm trying to hover and he, he just puts his feet up on the dash, sits back, says, I'm not touching the controls. You're going to learn how this hover thing or we're, or we're just going to crash into those trees. And, uh, and I'm sure this was a trick that he had used many a times, kind of like throwing somebody in the deep end of the pool. But at the time, I was like scared to death because I was like, there's no way he can get to the controls to save us if I can crash into these trees. And I don't know that I uh, became the perfecter, most perfect hoverer, if that's a word, hoverer um, at the time. Uh, but I didn't hit those trees. And I kept us uh, much closer to the middle of the field because I knew that he couldn't bail us out uh, if needed. But he was, he was something else. I think it probably took uh, years of experience and probably the combat experience he had to feel comfortable um, doing that. He was the same guy that uh, would chain smoke. So he'd chain smoke, and it, it kind of cracked me up because he couldn't smoke in the helicopters at that time. When he started flying, you could smoke in helicopters, and there was ashtrays and stuff. But by this time, you know, you could smoke in helicopters. And um, whenever we would solo in the helicopters – you would always, you know, see all the IPs like that, the Vietnam era IPs standing around the field house in the middle of the runways. Each, each field house like that would have like usually four to six runways, a couple on either side of the field house. The field house would be middle. 
and all these flight students would be in their helicopters doing these traffic patterns and all the you could see all the ips just sitting down in the middle of just chain smoking because they were nervous that we were going to wreck the helicopter i didn't don't think anybody ever wrecked them so good good folks that uh, got me through it, that's for sure so going back to like your service in Afghanistan and the time of like 9-11, how did you feel when you were first shipped out? Um, so for Afghanistan, I mean, obviously nervous, right? Um, but at, at the time I was a, like I said, I was a company commander. So I was more nervous about making sure all my, troops, my pilots, the, the air crew, the crew chiefs, the, all the folks that worked for me uh, that I got to serve with were prepared. Um, I probably neglected my own family to some degree as that, that real quick ramp up period we had. Like I said, they, were, they said, hey, we need you to go. And then we were ramping up, making sure that, that they had the time to, to make sure their families were squared away. But my, so really the nervousness I had was more of Hey, I built this. I'm responsible for all these people, and I don't want any of my mistakes to, to cost them their lives. Um, and the interesting thing about it is, is all those, you know, when we when we get in country, right? When we get in Afghanistan, we start running missions. Um, it may be counterintuitive to what people think. The hard decisions I had to make were not. <coughs> excuse me. We're not about. Hey, who am I going to go? sent on this dangerous mission that it might cost their lives. The hardest decisions were, uh, who am I not going to let go on this mission? Cause we always had more pilots than we had aircraft normally, or even if we had enough exact number of pilots for aircraft, depending on when it was, uh, you didn't need like, or in my company, I had eight aircraft, right. That belonged to me and my company. Um, so our, we didn't always need all eight of our aircraft. Uh, in the company to go do the mission. So every one of them, all those folks that went with me, all the pilots and stuff, they wanted to be there. They wanted to serve the country and they wanted to go do the mission, right? They wanted to be out there. And so the, the hardest decisions was in, in times I had time to try to tell folks, Hey, Riley, you're not going uh, on this mission today. Anna's going on this mission today. Uh, and you'd give me the hard time. Riley, of course, would come back and be like, no, no, no. I, I, I want to go on this mission. I got it. But you'll go the next one, you know, just trying to, to do that. It's like, you know, if you've ever played sports, right, everybody wants to be on the field and wants to get their chance to, to play and do what they've been training for and what they believe in. And everyone that went with me believed that we were in Afghanistan for the right reason, doing the right thing, uh, trying to prevent anybody from attacking the United States again. So, so those were the, that was the hardest, you know, you asked me about my feelings. When I was there. That was really kind of the hardest feelings and decisions I had was trying to make it. It was easy when I had missions that included all the helicopter and all my pilots because I didn't easy, you know, all right, we'll just plan a great mission. We'll uh, there's going to be risks, but we'll put, put stuff in place. that's going to mitigate the risks as best we can and make sure we're ready. I felt like we were all trained. I felt like we were always ready. I felt like we were the best uh, pilots out there to do the job. Um, and it was always good when I could put everybody on the mission because, like I said, I was trying to tell people, you know, you're not going to get in the, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to play today. You're going to sit on the bench for a little while. Nobody wants to sit on the bench.
I'll give you a little another vignette while you're um, on that. Um, kind of like a little story, quick story on. So whenever, um, when I was in Afghanistan, um, uh, my wife was the, what we call family, family readiness group leader back in Fort Campbell still. So her job was kind of make, looking after the families that were back here, the spouses, their kids, making sure if there was any need, she communicated that to any of the rear detachment people that were still in Fort Campbell. Um, and then would also try to communicate to me. The idea is right. You have the folks, the, the soldiers and stuff in combat. You don't want them to be concerned about what's going on back home. You want them to be able to focus on, on their mission and not be distracted. But part of that was uh, a uh, um, about once a month. Didn't always happen, but the idea was once a month I could do a group called a VTC, so a video teleconference. So kind of like what we're doing right now on on Zoom or Google um, meetings. But back then it wasn't as common. And it, since we we're in Afghanistan, they were in Tennessee. It had to run through the satellites and. It was, a, it was a much bigger deal than it is nowadays just to pull it up online. Well, because I would knew I was meeting, get to see her face to face, usually again, every few months, I would tell her when an upcoming meeting was, hey, bring so-and-so's spouse uh, and I'll bring the, the soldier with me on my end so they'll get to see each other as well and do a quick face to face. Uh, and we'll talk business afterwards because that was what it was for. It was talking, you know, family readiness, military readiness, business. But um, they could they could bring people in. And uh, I remember one time I had uh, a pilot on my side named Sam Bennett, one of uh, the warrant officers in the company. He came. I had him come with me. And Julie, my wife, had uh, Brandy Bennett, his wife, um, come and uh it was just the most wonderful thing feeling in the world because brandy had brought samantha their daughter, their daughter you know they're like their three-year-old daughter on their side and as soon as the vtc connected and this three three or four year old little girl just the cutest blonde hair you know little girl saw her dad on our side uh she immediately broke into this great giggle, smiles and giggling that was about the warmest thing that ever touched your heart uh, in the world. And to be able to see that, you know, from halfway around the world was, uh, was uh, pretty moving. So those types of feelings were amazing. So after your service, uh, what did you do? And like, what does your day-to-day -day life look like now? So I'm still in the service. I'm still active duty. Um, the uh, right now I teach at the National War College. So I mean that's at Fort McNair in Washington D.C. Uh, our mission here at the National War College is to take uh, senior leaders um, in across the military services, but also across the government, uh, and help them become strategic leaders and teach them how to do strategy. So. I'd say senior leaders, I'm talking about in the military, your 05, 06 levels. So for the Coast Guard, they'd be commander, captain level, same with the Navy, Air Force, Army, Marines. You're talking lieutenant colonel, colonels. Uh, we we uh, get some flag officers, the one-star. Usually those may come from foreign services because we have foreign services come in. 
as well, foreign military services normally. And then we also have, uh, like I said, G about GS-15 to, to senior executive service levels from either Department of State, FBI, Department of Justice, DHS, you name it, across the CIA, whatever, right across the, um, the spectrum. And, and it's a year long uh, course of work where they take classes and just, and they earn a master's degree. Uh, but the whole time they're uh, not just studying how to be better strategists and, and examples of, of leadership. They also are acculturated, right. And learn from each other and their own backgrounds, especially it's great to have our foreign officers as well that come over uh, to, to get things that you can't get anywhere else. Right. And so, so when they graduate from here, they go on to do great things for wherever they came from and hopefully, you know, continue on up in the ranks to, to serve our country. So that's, that's what I do uh, nowadays. So my day-to-day -day is coming into the office and uh, if I'm teaching classes that day, I teach class. If I'm not, I'm either preparing for teaching class or doing some kind of research, writing, uh, like, a, like mainly what most college professors would do. Um. This is a podcast that seeks stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Do you have any stories that relate to those themes that you would like to share? Sure. So I, I, I hope that some of the stuff I've shared already, because yeah. I feel like it does. Yeah. Um, I can I can probably talk all day about courageous things I've seen people do. Um, I've been lucky enough to have been somewhat usually uh, – Riding some of the aircraft, some of those aircraft where some courageous things uh, happen. But one, uh, one, one courageous thing I will story I'll tell just mainly because it's also funny. Uh, but it just goes to the, the links to me of, of courage that people will do that um, um, that they don't even recognize it as courage. It's kind of like doing the right thing. And I'll share one from the Army and then one from the Coast Guard. So. When I was in Iraq um, with with that same company, uh, we were making our we were leading the push into Iraq and leading the push into Baghdad, and we were heavily engaged uh, with Iraqi Republican Guard forces. A lot of our aircraft were getting shot up, um, and if you're in that terrain there, where the terrain you have a lot of um, irrigation canals where tanks and troops can't, can't drive through. So they're kind of limited to a uh, the high, one, either road, right, a highway or whatever. There's a couple of big highways that run north, south, east, west type thing. But the helicopters obviously can move all over the place. Well, at one point, uh, one of our helicopters, and we were Apache company, so one of our Apache helicopters, uh, flown, this one was being uh, – um, Kevin Keaton, the warrant officer named Kevin Keaton was the, uh, was the pilot in command of it. And they come across about 30 Iraqis, uh, Iraqi military folks, right? So in Republican Guard Iraqis, they were in this uh, irrigation canal, right? And those irrigation canals can be pretty deep. And they had weapons and everything. Well, as soon as he pulled up an Apache, they all threw up their hands and surrendered, right? And they want to surrender to this Apache. Well, how is, you know, an Apache helicopter supposed to take 30 people prisoner, right? You can't really do it. So, so Kevin Keaton, this pilot gets this great idea that he's going to 
land the helicopter, get out with his little nine millimeter pistol he has and walk over to all these Iraqis, uh, Republican Guard Iraqis that have, they've thrown down their guns, but their guns are still right there. You know, they can easily pick them back up and round them up and walk them like the mile down to the main road to hand them over to where the tanks and the troop carriers, American troops are coming up the, coming up the road. And I mean, the courage would have to be involved in like, Hey, the right thing to do is to capture these people. And I can't just leave them because if I leave them, they can pick back up their guns and shoot at American forces behind us. Um, but you're not going to do something inhumane, like shoot them with your Apache, right? That'd be, that's totally wrong decision. That's terrible. So so to do the right thing, his his decision, you know, never even thinking about the courage it took for him just to like to get out and let this. Luckily, he didn't ever do that because another pilot in another helicopter, um, guy named Bruce Carson, told Kevin, like, Kevin, that's a basically he's got this good Southern draw, like he's from Kentucky, like Kevin, that's a bad idea, you know. So I gave him one of those, and and they figured out how to get him uh, um, to to try to get the American forces to come take these. But so this the. Uh, the everyday courage, right? You saw that kind of stuff all the day, just trying to do the right thing. In the Coast Guard, one of the most courageous stories I ever heard is anytime you hear about a helicopter crew launching, flying through a hurricane. So most people right, are going the other direction. Like, hey, here's a hurricane coming. We're evacuating. Everybody get out of the way. Well, unfortunately, not everybody... Um, always gets out of the way. And I remember one story. Uh, if you remember when Hurricane Katrina came through, it came through, it, it hit the panhandle of Florida first, got back in the Gulf, and then went back north and then hit New Orleans. Well, on its first path, pass coming through Florida, some of our air crew, Coast Guard air crew, there were some boats out there that people got in trouble and the hurricane needed rescuing. And so they had to fly, and they're flying all the way through this hurricane, can't see anything. They're getting thrown around, torn around, tossed around their helicopter, um, you know, getting sick. You know, and most time air crew doesn't get, don't get sick, but push their way all the way through. And they hit the eye of the hurricane and it's calm. And they're able to be like, but the scariest part about it is now they got to fly through the other side because where the boat was that needed help, was on the other in the hurricane bands on the other side of the eye. So if, if you, I, I've been in those positions and I will tell you that as you're flying through that, it is about as scary as it can be, but I can't think of anything worse than getting through it and being like, Oh, we made it. Thank God we made it. Oh, but now we got to do it again to go right back into the other side. Uh, because because it takes a lot of courage to get into the hurricane in the first place, but you don't know what you're really facing until you're in it. These guys knew what they were facing. They just went through it and then had the courage because they knew people had, depending on them to, to save their lives. And if they didn't do it, those people were going to die to punch right back into the hurricane and do it again. And they did. And they went there and they got those people out of the water and then flew back through that hurricane and got them all, all safe. So, so to me, the, uh, the courage that that, that that takes of there's the courage of the unknown of what you're about to face and you're not sure of, but sometimes it takes more courage for the known because you already know how, how bad it's going to be and you got to do it anyways because 
that's what you swore to do. That's what you signed up for. Um, and luckily, they all got back safe, and they were able to do it. But uh, I'm glad it was them and not me. How about that? Because it just gives me goosebumps. Scared just thinking about it. What advice would you give to young people listening to this interview? Um, that, that feels like a big responsibility, right? That I'm going to be talking to a lot of young people, and if I say something wrong, I'm going to fell them. I don't want to fell them. Uh, but I would, I would say my best advice would be be persistent in whatever you want to do. You know, there's the old saying like, I'll, I'll you know, I'll trade uh, hard work for talent any day. I think some coaches have said that. Right. The idea that uh, anything is possible. It happens every day. People gain the impossible. So. Find out what you believe in. Find out what you are passionate about, and stick to it until you get there. And it doesn't matter if it's not a money-making thing. Well, then do it as something as a hobby, as something you enjoy. Right? I'm not one to say, you know, hey, whatever your passion may be, go uh, do that, make a living doing that. Because some of your passions, it's hard to do do a living. But that doesn't mean you have to give up on it. That um, you can embrace it and do it as something you do on the You know, it's just fun when you're not making your millions or or work. And then, and then the other side of that is like, there's a lot of ways to serve, and that's the other advice: is always find a way to serve. Because I, I serve by being in the military, uh, and I look, enjoy that kind of service. But when I get out of the military, I don't know what kind of job I'll be doing. But whatever it is, I'm still going to find a way to serve and give back to my country and my community. And there's people that. Never were in the military. That probably were business people making millions of dollars, and I bet that they served their community and country better than I ever will have because of the things they were able to do. But just give back and serve. I think that's probably my best advice. And is there anything else you would like to share before we complete this? Just that、uh, I thank you both for for doing this. I, I talk about service, what you two are doing,、uh, and. As part of Operation Crest、uh, and all the folks involved in that,、uh, you know, I just said, "Hey, best advice to serve," and you guys are already living that out, and I really appreciate that. And it's inspirational to me, and I thank you for doing it. And I hope that your classmates and others around you draw inspiration from you for doing it. Thank you. So, Riley, what did you think? So,、um, I thought that the story about. The helicopters getting loaded up for deployment to Afghanistan into the planes was really cool because it's kind of crazy to think that they can load three helicopters into one plane. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And I also really admired、uh, Captain Smith's、um, story of courage about his friends who flew those planes through Hurricane Katrina.、Um, like that's just、yeah. crazy. Like. Not even planes, helicopters. Yeah, yeah, helicopters. Right. Even, even crazier. crazier. Yeah, and it was just like really cool how he was able to save so many lives from Hurricane Katrina, and just I just admire how like brave his friends were to go through the hurricane like two times. Yeah, I thought that Captain Smith's、um, reasoning for switching from the army to the Coast Guard. Was interesting.、Uh, 
uh, because it doesn't only have the military component, like he was saying, it has a humanitarian and the homeland security roles, which uh, I thought that was a really cool take on why he switched services. Yeah, I thought so too, and it was just, I liked seeing how he jumped different careers different, at different times, and it kind of shows like you can really do anything, you can do whatever you want, because there are so many options. Um, and it's cool how he's able to uh, teach at the War College now and still be in service mm-hmm. and teaching other people about the military and like what he's done. I thought that the story about finding, about the guy who found people in, who found enemy soldiers in the middle of kind of nowhere and didn't have any way to take them to the, uh, to the proper people to take them as, as prisoners rather than to kill them. Yeah. Um, I thought that that was an interesting story because it just shows because he put himself at a severe risk uh, by landing his helicopter and just going over to get them and, and stay with them until someone else could uh, arrive to, to properly deal with the situation that was there. Yeah, it was really interesting. He took a lot of risks and made lots of sacrifices. And I appreciated his advice at the end about serving your country and how important that is and how we all do something to help our nation. I thought that was interesting too because thinking about service of your country in the the non-military sense is is a really interesting idea Um, because some the way he explained it, sometimes you serve your country every day. Yeah. Um, with, you know, standard things that people just do, which was interesting to think about. I agree. Thanks for listening to the Operation Crest podcast. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's hosts were Ava and me, and our guest was Jason Smith. The music was provided by Coma Media and We Video. The questions were written by us, and the editing was done by our teacher, Mr. Finland. Until next time, see ya!